Hello, and welcome to the A Conversation with Speaker Series podcast from the Biederman Entertainment and Media Law Institute at Southwestern Law School. I'm your host, Orly Ravid, director of the Biederman Institute. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations with influential members of the entertainment, sports, and media law industries. Top-notch lawyers and other experts share their own journeys and provide insights into hot-button topics. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to not miss out on new episodes. In this episode, we hear a unique presentation from Danielle Van Leer, a Southwestern Law School professor and SAG-AFTRA Assistant General Counsel IP and Contracts, on a topic that is especially relevant now, the deepfakes phenomenon. This discussion includes a brief introduction to the technology, including its positive, negative, and worst-case applications. Professor Van Leer addresses areas where deepfakes pose the most threat, including pornography and other unauthorized nudity, fake news, and fraud. There's a PowerPoint that goes with this podcast, and you can find it in the show notes if you wish to follow along. We hope you enjoy this special edition of A Conversation with the Deepfakes Phenomenon. We're so honored to have you, Danielle Van Leer, um, speak about deepfakes. Uh, without further ado, then let me turn it over to you, Professor. Thanks, Orly. Thanks for having me. And I know we, we kind of had some fits and starts getting this scheduled. So I'm glad uh, we're able to get it going, uh, despite our unusual circumstances. And a little bit of background on how I ended up uh, becoming involved and developing some expertise in deep fakes. Aside from the work that we've been doing at SAG-AFTRA, and we're going to talk about some of the, the legislation that we've been involved with. But aside from, from just the work aspect, I just completed a LLM at the University of Edinburgh, which was focused on innovation, technology, and the law. And because I was doing some work at, at SAG-AFTRA on deepfakes, I pitched a topic, uh, a deepfakes-related topic for my dissertation and ended up writing a, um, a dissertation on it. So I ended up doing a lot of real deep dive into the technology, which I still only partially understand. I, I used to be able to, to do computer programming, but with the, the current uh, computer uh, programming languages, it's a little bit over my head. But there's, uh, you know, I've, I read a, a ton of fascinating technology papers, uh, there, but I also discovered in the course of it uh, there hasn't been much out there in the legal field yet. There, there's been a, at the time I was doing that uh, last year, there had been a handful of law review articles out there. So anyways, um, as I mentioned, this derived from my uh, dissertation research. And I first did a presentation initially for the SAG-AFTRA staff. And then I've done a couple for one of the, uh, for over in the UK for a couple of groups over there. So it's been uh, global. And I've been speaking and studying this a lot now. So this is a variation on the, that first presentation with a little bit of newer information updating it. And uh, basically, we're going to talk very briefly about the history of image um, and video alteration, because when you look at it, deep fakes are, not, are just a new technology, a new way of doing something that's been happening as long as images have been created. We'll talk about what deep fakes are and why they're different than so-called shallow fakes, which are another problem that we're, we're, we run into. Talk about some beneficial uses of the technology, the bad stuff that we're all hearing about in the news, including um, fake news, political uh, disinformation, fraud. I like to call it the terrifying, which is the image-based sexual abuse, the non-consensual porn. And then 
uh, a ray of hope, just what is um, some of the legislation that's recently been passed and maybe on the horizon, some of the initiatives that have been taken. And then in there as well, we'll talk a little bit about what the platforms, the internet platforms are doing. And uh, if you encounter deep fakes, how you can report them, et cetera. So basically, as I said, you know, uh, Hollywood has long had the technology to digitally insert people into motion pictures to manipulate the performances and even to depict uh, people in the nude. And it's, there are different ways that they've done this, either using special effects or even using practical effects. And it, it, so this is really nothing new, whether it's for Hollywood or, you know, we've all heard about Photoshop photos that have uh, been manipulated and altered. What, what's different here is that the, uh, the deepfake technology can be done cheaply and easily and all you really need is a reasonably powerful computer. You don't need expensive Hollywood uh, special effects anymore. Moving on to video, you, you may recall when uh, Paul Walker was uh, killed in a car crash a number of years back. Uh, they used digital editing techniques to, to where his brother stood in for him for a lot of the scenes that were shot and then digitally replaced his image into it. Um, so there's the Hollywood effects. And in Rogue One, Peter Cushing was resurrected essentially to reprise his role as Grand Moff Tarkin. And in this case, you can see a little bit about how it was done, where they had an actor who was of a similar build, stature, and manner of speaking, who wore facial capture equipment while filming, and then in production, they very carefully um, replaced his image. And the results, I, I think everybody who has seen that movie would say at the time, the results were fairly mixed. But, you know, from a technological standpoint, it, I think it was a, a leap forward in the technology. If you saw that movie, you also know that there's the surprise uh, appearance by a de-aged Carrie Fisher at the end. Sorry for the spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen it, but I think the spoiler moratorium has expired at this point. And I just got an email today from a colleague and he sent apparently somebody using deepfake technology basically um, fixed, quote unquote, uh, Carrie Fisher's appearance in uh, at the end of that movie. And I, I don't know, I looked at the video and I didn't have time to yeah, insert it in here, but I, I don't think it really improved upon it. Uh, but I think it, it definitely, I mean, they did it with a like a inexpensive computer and it took them 24 hours as opposed to millions of dollars uh, in special effects. So I think we're gonna see this uh, happening more and more. Another example, this was much more recently, and this was in connection with the ESPN, The Last Dance uh, documentary about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And this was a State Farm commercial, but they used um, footage, old footage of SportsCenter anchor Kenny Main, and he did do the, the audio, and so he was involved in it. But it certainly looks like they used some form of deepfake technology to create this. And they said that they did it you know, a lot of the, the criticism was that the video didn't quite look real. And what he's saying, uh, so what they do is it's supposed to look like a, um, a video from 1998. And he's reporting on how great the team is and that there'll even be documentaries of them in the year 2020. So, you know, but they said in, in discussing this particular video, they said that they actually intentionally made it somewhat imperfect because 
they wanted they didn't want to confuse people and make them think it was real but it definitely this you know this technology is is getting into wider use including this was a very mainstream use in in the state farm commercial so what are deep fakes the term deep fake is actually a portmanteau of the the, the phrase deep learning which is the type of artificial intelligence technology that's used and the word fake and it actually came from a reddit user's username and he was um reportedly one of the first ones to start making these videos his was definitely one of the first ones that gained prominence and it was a, a pornographic video involving uh the actress gal gadot and um it spawned a whole uh sub community on reddit that has uh, since been banned. So one way I like to describe deepfakes, they have three, are always gonna have three key elements. The first one is that they're gonna be created by AI. And that's important to understand because a lot of what the media tends to call deepfakes really are not deepfakes. They're called cheap fake, shallow fakes, and they're created using traditional video edit or audio editing techniques. I think it was a year, maybe more now uh, ago, maybe it was two years ago now, there was a video circulating of Nancy Pelosi where she seemed potentially because she was slurring her words and talking very slowly. And then when the real video, it, it was compared to the real video, um, it, it turned out that somebody had slowed down the video to create that effect. Um, that's a cheap fake or a shallow fake because that was all done using um, traditional video editing techniques and that kind of stuff has been out there a lot. There, there have been a number of uh, videos that were selectively edited. Those are being used. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but when you get into the political arena, for instance, or the the manipulated news uh, arena, a lot of it right now has still been these these cheap fakes or shallow fakes. So AI is one of the key uh, components. Falsification, obviously the, the goal of creating a deep fake is to create something that's fake. And then automation. And where those th three things combine in the Venn diagram, that's where you, your deep fakes uh, resides. So you're always gonna have those three components for it to be a deep fake. So a few definitions, and I, I don't know that we necessarily need to go deep into it, but you know, it's, it's a form of, it, it uses machine learnings and a specific type of machine learning called a neural network or neural net. And as I mentioned when we were chatting before, um, the, the technology on this is, is way beyond my capabilities. But the way neural nets are created, uh, they're, they're designed to function similar to the neurons in the human brain. So it's not just a straight line algorithm. They have multiple layers. They have multiple, they're, they're kind of like a net in a, in a way. And it's when you, when you see them visualized. So they're, they're really complex algorithms. The backbone of many of these technologies that are being used to create deepfakes are, it's actually built on an open source tool that Google created called TensorFlow. And that technology has, um, has formed the backbone of a lot of this, although I think now other technologies are being uh, brought into it as well. So the type of neural network it, that is being used in, in the creation of deepfakes is called a generative adversarial network. 
And what that does is it's basically a two competing neural networks that are pit against each other to learn and improve from each other. So you have one that generates samples. In this instance, is generating pictures or video of the person you want to depict. And then this one called the discriminator, which uses training data that you fed into it which could be existing photos or videos pulled from around the internet or pulled from the person's past work. And basically the two networks compete and train each other. So the generator starts with very fuzzy images that it's creating and the discriminator will say if it's real or false or, you know, if it's true, uh, true or false, accurate or inaccurate, you know, gives it kind of a yes, no answer. And so, as the discriminator rejects the data, the generator gets better and better. These networks, once you get them started, they learn and develop without human intervention. And that has actually posed some uh, considerable concern among uh, technologists and ethicists because of their extraordinary power and the fact that they're completely open source and pretty much anybody can access them and use them without really anybody knowing what's going on. So there actually, there are a couple tools and I'll, I'll, we'll get to some examples as we go, but there's even a, a text generator now where it will generate fake news stories based on headlines that are trending on the Reddit news, um, news boards, you know, and I've actually read some of them are ridiculously hilarious but it, some of them definitely sound real. And so we're getting to a point where you can have artificial intelligence generating articles that you don't know if they're actually real. So thinking about the types of deep fake, um, this is just a list of the different uh, types that seem to be most prevalent. The face swap one is the one that still most people are familiar with. As I mentioned, that's where it takes a uh, image of somebody and basically graphs it onto someone else's face. There's one called the puppet master is what they refer to it as. That one is, um, it'll take the, it's kind of like performance capture or motion capture. So it takes the movements of uh, one person and graphs them onto, uses them to kind of like animate the other video. And then there's a uh, lip sync where it will uh, sync the, the lip movements of one person to another person to another videos you know based in time with whatever the audio track is and it could even be with fake audio there's a full body motion transfer which is essentially a full body version of the puppet master type a deep video portraits or living portraits i think i have an example of those um, th so we'll talk about those more but those are when where it animates literally just a single from a single photo Audio deepfakes are suddenly becoming uh, more prevalent and they've been used now in the context of some fraud and they've also been used, um, they, they apparently uh, pissed off some, uh, I believe it was Jay-Z who was not happy with some audio deepfakes that were made of, um, of him. And then there's this one called StyleGAN, which is basically generating fake people, fake photos. And that one's definitely being uh, misused already in the context of online social networks. And uh, it, I think it's gonna cause more problems in the future, but uh, so it's just something to look out for and we'll talk more about that. So I mentioned StyleGAN and if you wanna have fun with it, um, 
the URL for it is thispersondoesnotexist.com. One of the things, the concerns with this is that it's already in some ways being weaponized. Um, you, there are uh, on like social networks, for instance, and social media and on review sites or dating sites, you know, people will do stuff where they'll create a, a fake profile. And it used to be that they would just pull, they'd, they'd find some, you know, stock photo or they would find some random person's photo on Facebook or whatever and create their own profile using that person's photo. Well, now they can generate wholly AI images that a reverse Google search is not going to trace back to anybody or a reverse image search of any type. So you don't know, is that person who is spreading propaganda a real person or is it a bot using an AI generated photo? Um, and so there are some kind of scary implications to this uh, technology in the sense, in that sense. And, you know, from a business perspective, um, I think businesses need to be concerned about fake reviews being posted or fake, you know, being slammed in social media for stuff they didn't do. And certainly, as I mentioned, the, the spread of disinformation by bots that look real. I mentioned audio deepfakes and Jay-Z. The, there are some really, this is a, a YouTube channel called Vocal Synthesis. And Jay-Z recently tried to use the um, DMCA takedown, these uh, audio deepfakes him, which after initially taking them down, I believe YouTube then uh, put them back up uh, because it didn't, you know, I, I don't think it's an appropriate use of the DMCA because there's no copyright infringement in this case, even if it's just um, even if he's reading, if the AI is reading from or studying his prior works, it's generating a completely new work. But there's some fascinating stuff on there. So if you ever wanted to hear Frank Sinatra sing Dancing Queen, here's your chance on this uh, vocal synthesis uh, YouTube channel. When I, a lot of times when I do this presentation, I also have an example of a a recreation of the speech that John F. Kennedy was going to give when he was assassinated that was created by a Scottish company using uh, an AI-based uh, deep audio deepfake technology. They were able to like, you know, have this AI listen to countless uh, hours of Kennedy's speeches and they uh, recreated that speech, just they fed the text in and it generated a fairly, fairly accurate uh, representation of him perform, you know, him giving that speech has a lot of noise to it, but that's also uh, fairly typical. And so it's, uh, it, it's really fascinating how fast this audio technology is, um, is advancing. And Going on to the next to the future, um, in China, they've all actually created virtual news anchors now. And you can find this on YouTube. There's a number of examples of him speaking both. Um, there's a Chinese version and there's also an English version. He's based off of a real news anchor. And the technology recently has uh, advanced a little bit where they've got it where he can actually, it's no longer just uh, chest up portrait it actually moves and walks around now and it's completely AI generated it is um, audio and video 
and it's uh, it's a fascinating look. So if you, I, I recommend giving it a search virtual or AI anchor, and and you should be able to find them on YouTube. So before we uh, go down a doom spiral of the bad parts of deep fakes, um, let's touch on some of the good side because there are. Um, obviously beneficial uses for this technology, both in the world of entertainment, where filmmaking and video games in particular have a good likelihood of benefiting from them uh, because it could make expensive, normally expensive visual effects a lot cheaper. User-generated content, uh, for those who were on the, the Zoom early, we were talking about the Bill Hader uh, video where he turns into Tom Cruise, and I think there's an even longer version of it out there now um, there's also the videos of Nicolas Cage uh, in a million different movies, basically, I think even as Lois Lane from one of the Superman movies. So there's a lot of opportunity for, um, you know, fun and, uh, and even those videos for fun user-generated content. In the education arena, um, there's talk about how deepfake technology can be used to create uh, realistic avatars in like AR and VR for kids in like online distance learning programs. And that could be especially beneficial for those who may not be able to attend school due to a disability. Um, these are some of the uses that were posited. As I mentioned, recreating and reanimating historical figures or works of art. I don't know if people are familiar with some of the, the project that's been going on at some of the Holocaust museums where they have done video interviews of Holocaust survivors. Imagine, you know, bringing someone back to life. They're, they're doing these interviews with them as adults, obviously, to record their testimony and, and give people a chance to interact with them using AI technologies, but you could animate them as a kid and have the kid telling their story or whatever, you know, or other historical figures. So this really is, it creates some really fascinating opportunities for um, learning and education. We're all on Zoom right now, and you may, I'm sure we've all had experiences, especially now during this pandemic, where you're on Zoom with somebody, but because their camera is not right at the center of their screen, they're kind of looking off to the side rather than straight at you. There's a technology that's being explored that they feel it could be worked into video conferencing technology, and it'll make sure that your face is always facing forward. Uh, stuff like that. Disability assistance. Uh, I mentioned the, the potential for AR and VR avatars. There's also uh, the speech technology. Actually, a lot of it has, uh, has originated with companies that are doing disability assistance, where people who are losing their ability to speak due to uh, the onset of various uh, diseases can record excerpts of them speaking and then when they have speech assistance tools instead of it speaking in a robotic voice or someone else's voice the, their speech assistance tools will be able to speak back in their own voice using this technology so that's one thing and and even recreating the kennedy speech is a way where some of this can be used um, in in recreating uh, famous speeches there's customer service uses for it, especially, particularly phone customer service. So you, instead of a robotic voice, um, it, it has a real voice. 
but then we get to the bad and um and this is where deep fakes really start going off the rails um obviously fake porn um non-consensual porn nudity that's been one of the big concerns fake news that is literally fake as opposed to just something that that people don't like is another example coming from the perspective <laughs> from my perspective where i work performance replacement replacing people with you know digitally created people it's going to take jobs away there is the potential for blackmail and harassment there is really high potential for fraud and i'm going to talk about some fraud that's already been committed of course politics geopolitics and public safety and then there's a, a real risk to journalism and erosion of public trust from, from deep fakes. So we'll talk about, a little bit about all these topics. Um, one thing that I don't cover in, in this presentation, but for all of the attorneys on this presentation, it's worth keeping in mind is how this is going to um, play in when it comes to rules of evidence, uh, for instance, and the need for expert witnesses, uh, et cetera, and authenticating evidence. Because uh, I was just sent the other day, um, and it was it was too late for me to really work it into this presentation. But a colleague sent me an article about a, a couple of instances where uh, there have been some evidentiary effects with it. So. One was a child custody battle in the UK where the husband was from Dubai. And it, this was not a deep fake. It ended up being a shallow fake or cheap fake. But one of the parents had uh, manipulated audio of the other one to make it seem that, can't recall exactly what he, what they did, but it was, uh, you know, they tried to make it look like, oh, I, I found it, it was, they tried to make it look like the husband was making threats to the mother or the ex-husband. And fortunately, the, um, the husband's attorney was able to prove that the, video, the audio was fake. And while not a deep fake, you know, there are concerns with, um, with that in, in litigation. Uh, there was another instance where an audio recording of a voicemail uh, was not admissible or maybe it was it was admissible um, despite the inability to authenticate it. So, you know, there's I think there's the courts and our profession are going to have to uh, be looking closely at at the changes to evident if there's needs to be changes to evidentiary standards or how do we authenticate or prove that this audio or, or video is is or isn't real. Um, or is or isn't fake, um, depending on what we're trying to prove. So it's just something to bear in mind as, um, as this uh, technology proliferates over the next uh, few years. So we'll start with the context of fake news or disinformation is really a better term for it. Obviously, this is not something new. Even the, t the, the term, uh, there are references to it as far back as the 12th century. Uh, this is another topic I had done some research on for one of my classes. And it really, I mean, it really, as it really took off when the printing press took off. And with the advent of the internet, uh, we've all seen it over the last several years that the internet has really democratized news and hastens the spread of accurate and 
inaccurate information and sometimes actively uh, false uh, propaganda. And what has happened is for those of us of a certain age or older, we all grew up with the major news organizations as gatekeepers to, you know, the, the truth, so to speak, um, or at least to ethical reporting. And what's happened now is that literally anybody who has internet access and a modicum of skill can create a website and call it a news site. Um, and we see that with a lot of these so-called news blogs. And some of the research I did in this area was actually fairly concerning. And a lot of these sites, I mean, we've seen it a lot happening in the political cycle. And we saw it with um, what happened during the 2016 election with the way, um, you know, foreign powers were able to manipulate the media and um, what we were seeing and what was being reported. And that, so that's being done, um, you know, a lot of these sites do lack the traditional journalistic ethics. So that uh, has led to this proliferation of disinformation. Uh, here's a couple of different, these come from uh, some of the work I did. These are, you know, from uh, UK sources, but because that's where I was doing my, my research, but a couple of other definitions. Um, I, I tend to steer away from fake news a lot uh, as a term, uh, simply just because that term has a very loaded meaning now because it's the term itself has been weaponized. Um, and everything is, you know, everything that somebody doesn't like is fake news. But disinformation is, uh, you know, refers to the deliberate creation and sharing of false or manipulated information that's intended to deceive or mislead. I, I think that's, uh, generally speaking, tends to be a better definition, better phrase to use. I think most of us have heard the concept of the big lie, where um, I think We've even in the last several years seen some active examples of it, but uh, the concept that if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually uh, come to believe it. The corollary to that is these concepts of the liar's dividend and reality apathy. Um, the latter one is, is one that I've heard come up more recently. Uh, I hadn't really heard that until fairly recently. One of the concerns with deep fakes, and this is with all types of deep fakes, is that it will prime the public to be distrustful of audio and video. So what you see, you know, it's we're all familiar with this concept of, you know, seeing is believing. Oh, I saw a video, so it must be true. But what's happening with deep fakes is it allows people, you know, to dismiss the truth as fiction. And, you know, not to get political, but one of the big examples of that was, for instance, the Access Hollywood tape during the 2016 election, where, um, you know, then candidate Trump was on audio, you know, we all heard it, him saying things, and he denied saying it. And so this whole question of, uh, with de as deep fakes and even cheap fakes and shallow fakes pro proliferate, you start to wonder what is the truth? And it makes it easier and easier for um, particularly public figures to say, well, that's not real. Um, that, that video is fake um, or that audio is fake. I never said that. And how do you prove it? And then that leads to this concept of reality apathy, which for you know, the audience, it becomes too difficult to figure out what's real or fake. So we just basically rely back on our general preconceived beliefs. If, if you're inclined to 
believe the person saying the video is fake, you're going to believe it's fake. Or if you're inclined to disbelieve them, or if you're inclined to believe the person that is saying it's real, you're going to believe that. And in the end, truth becomes a matter for debate, which brings us to how this plays into journalism. So journalists now get caught in the middle of this. Um, and this becomes important for those representing newsrooms as well. But journalists end up in, in an area where they're, they're, they run the risk of unwittingly spreading false news. And a lot of that comes from the rush to be the first to report it and to break a scoop because in our 24 hour news cycle, you know, the, the, well, I, the media company that breaks the story first is usually gonna be the one that, that gets the attention, that gets the ad dollars, et cetera. Suddenly firsthand accounts are going to be less reliable. So just because it's on video, um, and especially in this era of citizen journalism, you know, is that real video that we're seeing coming from that site of that event? Uh, we don't know at this point. And the traditional outlets that still um, exercise journalistic ethics are going to get scooped by the less ethical voices and those less ethical voices that have the more sensational stories, which may or may not be real, are going to end up being amplified. And again, like, like I said, we've already seen this happening with a lot of political news stories um, over the last number of years. So um, I have a couple slides that are tips for journalists. This is also, you know, for really for anybody who is um, working in the media and some verification techniques. Um, they're, you know, always approach, and this is actually, most of this is not just for journalists, this is for anyone just exercising some critical thought is to, you know, approach things from worst case scenarios and question, could this video have been manipulated? You know, you want to verify sources, uh, employ technical solutions. Uh, journalists need to have training on how to detect this stuff. Um, and sometimes you really need to go frame by frame um, because as we'll talk about uh, a little bit later on, technology is not keeping up with it. So really the, the recommendations uh, towards uh, towards that is that, you know, no, news organizations are advised to combine research, strategic, academic partnerships and training to really understand that. And there are a number of um, news organizations and academic institutions that are doing some, some really good work in that area right now. Politics. This is what everybody has been fearing for a while, but uh, it really hasn't come to fruition yet doesn't mean I think this next election cycle is one where if it doesn't happen now, I, I kind of tend to question what's going to happen if, if deep fakes are quite the threat that, that they're made out to be. Um, and as I mentioned earlier on, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that the cheap fakes or shallow fakes are just so much easier to generate and put out that the, when they're trying to create manipulated video, when, when somebody wants to cause trouble, it's just easier to do it the old fashioned way. But there definitely um, is concerned, you know, the, the, one of the articles I read on this uh, topic points out that the, a truthfully informed society is critical to preventing and fighting authoritarianism. And, you know, as I mentioned with the reality apathy, that when truth becomes a matter for debate, it, it's kind of anathema to democracy. So 
Um, that's where deepfakes, uh, I think, are going to cause the biggest issue in the political arena, as opposed to um, using like a deepfake of some political person to actually tip an election. But uh, there is this concept of diplomacy manipulation that I think is could be very real in geopolitics. And um, I think it's actually been used in some cases. There, there was like a Belgian political party that created a deep fake of um, President Trump to try to make it look like he was saying things that well, weren't hard to believe that he actually said them, but that he, he hadn't actually said. And I think there, there are some potentials more likely in, the, um, in that arena than in the direct political arena. The statistics show that false stories about politics spread more effectively than other types of news stories. So there, there definitely is the potential for spread. To, for the most part, obviously, um, you know, we have our own biases and, and most of the research uh, on deep fakes and politics and most of the discussion of it has focused on uh, uh, Western nations and particularly a lot of it here in the US and um, some of our uh, ally nations. But one of the, what hasn't been looked at and where it actually may have been used are in, in the context of uh, developing nations. So in uh, the country of Gabon, what was interesting was the president had not been seen for quite some time, for several months. And there was some concern about his health or that maybe something had happened. And a video surfaced containing his New Year's address or it was released to the public. And there was outcry that it was a deep fake and that it was trying to hide that something was wrong with him. And Experts are, um, have, had, have said that it is possible it was a deep fake and it actually prompted an attempted coup that was, that was eventually quashed. But, and the president has since resurfaced and is back um, in public. There, it definitely did raise some concerns. And similarly in Malaysia, there was a video that um, surfaced in which a man appeared to confess to having sex with a local politician. And the, the concern there was that, that uh, you know, in a highly religious country, you know, where um, same-sex relationships are, are not appropriate or in their, in their opinion, it, it basically impacted this polit politician's career. And it, it did appear to be fake. And a similar thing happened in Brazil where um, a, a politician got embroiled in a sex scandal that may have been a deep fake. So it's, um, it's definitely something of consideration, especially in um, developing nations that may not have quite the technology that, that larger uh, you know, first world countries have to fight this technology. Uh, in the business realm, and one of the areas that I work in is, um, is privacy and I work in our, with our IT department a lot and uh, do a lot of um, work with them on data security issues as well. And one of the big threats that particularly from audio deep fakes is in the context of fraud and social engineering. Uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the business email compromise attack where someone sends a email, you know, not necessarily hacked, but it's made to look like it's coming from, say, the company's 
CEO or, or CFO or high-level executive, and it gets sent to someone in the payroll or accounting department saying, hey, I need you to wire money to this account for our big vendor. We're closing a deal, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then it turns out that it was a, um, you know, a bogus email or they had, they had hacked the email, et cetera. Uh, deep fakes have already been used, audio deep fakes in that context. Uh, there have at least uh, uh, two to three reports of, of that having happened. I forget one was in a like a foreign subsidiary or foreign parent parent company, but what ends up happening is what happened was they called they made a phone call using manipulated audio. You know they convinced it was manipulated audio of the parent company's CFO or something, and they said you know transfer money to this account for this deal. And the person didn't go through, you know, it sounded like it was the right person. They covered up the noise, the glitches in the sound by just adding external noise. So it sounds like, you know, anybody who's been on Zoom lately or on a um, driving on a cell phone in, a, in the canyons here, you know how audio can break down pretty easily. So they just made it sound like it was a bad connection and tricked the, the uh, person into sending a large sum of money. And that's happened at least about three times now. So it's something that, uh, you know, you need to consider in your security response plans. Like, how do you respond to something like that? Another uh, possible area for fraud is uh, issuing false earning reports. Uh, so imagine a deep fake video of, um, you know, Elon Musk is notorious for making exorbitant statements uh, about Tesla, right? And even though the SEC has put a, some limitations on what he can and cannot say. Imagine a deep fake using audio and video of Elon Musk saying Tesla is going to have horrible earnings this year that causes people to dump stock or, you know, and then someone swoops in, whoever created that video swoops in and buys it at, at a record low and, and makes a ton of money. Or if you you know, create a deep fake of a corporate executive or a celebrity or whoever um, making a statement like saying that, um, you know, such and such company is going to donate a million dollars to COVID relief. And then that donation is never made because it was a deep fake. You know, that company suddenly is going to have a, a very serious um, PR problem on their hands and potentially, um, you know, going to be dealing with uh, regulatory uh, investigations if it's a regulated company, et cetera. So it's definitely something that uh, businesses in particular and, the, and legal departments need to be prepared for. And uh, I had to take out a slide that was in here, but it's not just businesses. Um, there's a, a video um, that I, I have when I do this in person that is basically from a story that that was done on one of the news shows um, and I, I can't recall which one it was exactly but a technology guy or the technology reporter it did a story on deep fakes and then he had an audio deep fake call his mom and his mom actually believed it was him talking not the audio deep fake um, so I don't know if any of you have ever been on social media and had a hacked account or a fake account 
uh, reach out to you and say it was a friend who was stranded in another country without their wallet that got stolen and please send them money. Well, now, you know, audio deepfakes, you know, you can have someone calling your parents saying so-and-so has been in a car accident, send money um, to help them or they're in jail or whatever it could be. So there's a lot of new uh, opportunities for, for the business level and the personal individual level. So getting into the, to the worst case of it, as of um, last September, nearly 15, there were nearly 15,000 videos, deep fake videos online. And this is from a company called Deep Trace Laboratories. And they've been in the news a bit lately because of their research. 96% of all deep fakes on the internet right now are pornographic. And almost all of them depict women of the pornographic ones compared to, you know, of the non-pornographic ones, only 39% uh, depict women. And this quote down below here, this was actually the title of an article, um, but it's, uh, it's just like the best way you can describe uh, what's happened here is that Google gave the world powerful AI tools and the world made porn with them. So when you look at it, uh, coming from the entertainment industry myself, 99% of the pornography subjects are in entertainment and approximately 1% are in news and media. And that's compared to only 81% of the of YouTube non-porn deepfakes. And most of them are, are hosted on deepfake specific sites. Although of the top pornography uh, websites out there, eight, eight out of 10 of them dip, uh, host deepfake pornography. And, you know, Professor uh, Danielle Citron at Boston University is one of the leading experts on this topic. And I, you know, this quote in one of her articles just really jumped out at me when I was researching this. And it's talking about how uh, deepfake technology is being weaponized against women because it, it really is um, the biggest concern with it, uh, um, most widespread issue right now. So why is it an issue, even though it's not really the person? A lot of people do dismiss the harm, um, including people in uh, positions of power. But really, it's a, it's a form of image-based sexual abuse, um, and it reduces uh, the victims to sexual objects, even if it's... Um, and th there was a, a great video I saw recently where uh, Kristen Bell was talking about the way... I think it was Kristen Bell... Uh, talking about when she found out that there were deep fakes of herself out there. And she was like, you know, that's my face that you're putting on this, you know, pornographic video. Because it's, it's reducing the victim to a sexual object. It denies them agency. Uh, it creates a um, identity not of their own making. And it, you know, it essentially it's forcing them into a form of virtual sex that they may or may not be aware of. Um, and the other problem, as I mentioned, is that the authorities are sometimes dismissive of it. And there were, when I was doing this research coming from the UK perspective, there were, you know, authorities that were outright dismissing uh, members of parliament that were saying, well, why should we care about this? It's not, or why do you care? It's not really you, you know, just completely dismissing the harm. But the studies have shown that the harms are similar to other forms of sexual abuse. And there's a whole laundry list of psychological harms and physical harms. And uh, among the other, the big harms, though, um, is how it impacts your personal relationships. Um, 
Uh, it's about victims withdrawing from public life and from their online lives. And particularly, you need to have an online presence in this day and age to some extent. You know, I don't know. I would guess uh, most people on here have some form of um, like a LinkedIn profile or, you know, professional profile somewhere. And one of the problems is that, and this is not just for celebrities because there's a growing community out there where they are, uh, people are creating or asking for help creating or asking other people to create uh, videos of exes, of their neighbors, of the woman they have a crush on. Um, and if these things get out there, you know, if anybody has uh, looked for a job anytime in the last decade or more, employers are out there doing online searches of candidates and will reject candidates based on findings that they've seen. And there was a time for myself, I occasionally will do online searches of myself just to see what's coming up. And, you know, fortunately now it's mostly um, uh, stuff that I've done uh, professionally, but there was another younger woman with the same name as me in the Netherlands who had an online profile with some rather racy photos. Um, and it definitely wasn't me. I mean, it was obvious that she was uh, in her uh, early 20s or something, and I was much older. So um, <laughs> you could tell that just by, <coughs> by the year I graduated. Um, but it definitely, you know, these were coming up fairly high in my search results at the time. And uh, that wouldn't have necessarily looked good for me uh, had people been searching for, for, for me. So it's definitely something to, that people need to be concerned with. It also puts people at heightened risk for blackmail or extortion. And that does include this concept of sextortion. And what that is, is when, um, you know, somebody is saying, well, I won't release your, uh, this deep fake video of you if you send me real nude photos or something like that. And that's happened with a number of these websites where, um, and, it, and young people tend to be very often the, the victims of these. And what, what happens is somebody will post a deep fake video. And so the person that's the victim of it will, will reach out to this deep fake website and say, you know, I want you to take this down. I didn't, you know, authorize it. And they say no and they, or offer to take it down if, you know, they send their own photos, et cetera. So uh, it does create a, a lot of risk for people. And one of the problems, so getting into the legal side of things um, now uh, for the rest of this presentation mostly, um, the law has not caught up with this. It, it's evolving and some states have uh, passed new laws on, on the topic and here in California we've been kind of at the forefront um, and I'll talk about our recent nudity law in a bit but there's really it, there's not a claim for invasion of privacy most likely because and we'll talk about that why that is false light here in California we do have false light so it um, it could be a false light claim um, harassment requires a quote that course of conduct. Some people will argue with this point, but uh, defamation claims I think are very easy to defeat in this context, for, as, and we'll discuss that in a minute. Uh, copyright's not gonna be an issue because uh, the, the victim rarely owns the copyright in the, the underlying video. Uh, cr there's no criminal law in most jurisdictions. 
and where there are revenge porn laws, uh, deep fakes are often expressly excluded in, in the way the, the videos are defined. And then you've got the Section 230 immunity for the internet platforms. Um, so let's look at the different potential causes of action. So one of the, the first ones that might come to mind uh, is public disclosure of private facts is you know disclosure of a fact about the individual that was private not publicly available or not voluntarily disclosed otherwise uh, highly offensive to the reasonable and defendant has acted unreasonably or recklessly um, but the thing is the person didn't perform the acts in the video so there's no fact being disclosed so that's probably going to defeat that cause of action Intrusion on seclusion, you know, it, it, you need to in, intrude on the privacy of another, but there's no intrusion into a private place here. It's a, it's a fake video. Appropriation or common law right of publicity uh, might be able to, um, to argue it. I think, uh, um, I think this one, uh, this, this was a, probably the wrong version of my slide set here because um, I don't have the actual California statute, but uh, the commercial nexus is missing. The, um, the use to the advantage, um, I, I actually have a couple of different slides, but if for, if for some reason it's not in this particular version. Um, and I think these, this may have been one that I created that was kind of a ge more generic presentation than just than California law. Uh, which is why some of these may not quite match up the California um, causes of action. But for um, right of publicity, you're missing uh, the commercial nexus for it or the um, use to one's advantage. Uh, defamation, a th statement to a third party that's injurious, that's false. Um, and if a pub public figure made with reckless disregard or intentional, um, but if the deep fake is labeled as fake, and as I mentioned previously, almost all of these are on websites that are described as deep fake websites, and they, I, I hate to say that when I was doing my dissertation research, I spent a lot, not a lot of time, but I spent some time looking at these websites, and I saw things I have never in my life wanted to see. I never wanted to see Hermione and those kind of activities. Um, but if the deep fake, you know, these are these websites are littered with disclaimers saying these are all fake videos. So, you know, sure, if the video gets out beyond those websites, maybe um, there's a defamation cause of action. But the initial publication, if you can even find out who did it, um, the initial publication made it clear that there was um, that this is a fake video. Now, if that that's not to say if it was done intentionally and depicted as a real video, um, if it was sent out and, you know, in, in the context of trying to make it look like the person actually did what they did or said what they said, um, there may very well be a defamation claim. But with the majority being um, right now fake pornography on deep fake specific sites, defamation is, is not gonna be a strong cause of action at this moment in time um, for those type of videos. But using the examples I, I gave before um, of you know, making a video of a corporate executive um, saying 
statement. I think in those cases, there may be a, a, a argument for um, defamation, but, and similarly for false light. And I think this was a, can't recall if this was the California statute or not, but the key thing with, with harassment is that it requires a course of conduct and that tends to be lacking in these cases. Um, usually you have a, um, a, the video is created once and put out on the website and then a second part, second or third party um, perpetuates the spread of it. So the person who created it and they may have done it initially to cause harm to the person, but they aren't engaging in a course of conduct. They've created the video once and distributed it once. Um, in some other jurisdictions, uh, there, where there is a, um, a slightly different harassment statute, um, in the UK in particular, it, there was a case, a criminal case, where a guy created manipulated uh, sexual photographs of somebody, uh, a woman he worked with who he was trying to get to go out on a date with him. And when she kept refusing him, he created these videos, posted them up on a pornography site, and then went to her HR department and said, hey, did you know this uh, young woman here is got videos or photos on a pornography site? Woman gets called into HR and you know nearly sees her career ruined because uh this guy created fake videos of her, or fake photos of her um and in that case uh, under the uk harassment laws um because there was more involved than just creating the photos because he was legitimately harassing her and kept asking her out on dates and because he reported her to her hr department and did all these other activities um in that case, they did find that it was harassment, but um, under the the statute there, and even under the statute, the laws here, um, harassment, the cause of action tends to be, the, the penalty seems to be too low to be a deterrent effect anyways. Cyber stalking, um, this was, uh, this is not the California law on point, but um, it's just another uh, potential cause of action that, um, but generally, because they're being created, deepfakes are being created with a, at least the pornographic ones with a prurient intent rather than intent that's directed at the person as a way to, to intimidate them or threaten them or even abuse or harass, um, the, the intent element may or may not be present. As I mentioned, revenge porn laws, uh, most states do have a revenge porn law. Uh, most of them only uh, classify it as a misdemeanor and the penalties are not very deterrent at this point in time. Uh, 22 states do have a felony level of it. Um, and, but only Virginia right now expressly includes deep fakes in its revenge porn laws. The other states uh, do not anticipate or do not contemplate deep fakes as a form of revenge pornography. So other impediments to successfully using the law to combat deepfakes, uh, one of the key problems is online anonymity. Uh, very few people are posting these under their real names and trying to get a user's name. Um, a lot of these websites may not require even any real contact information to register. 
So it, it makes it very difficult to, to track down the person who created and posted them. Uh, as, as the lawyers among us know, litigation is resource and time intensive. And for the, given that the potential recovery tends to be pretty low in a lot of these cases, you know, is it, is it worth it? Um, the, you know, not to mention, especially for celebrities, litigation attracts unwanted attention. And, and not just celebrities, but anybody in the public eye. Um, and when the remedy that's really desired is to remove it from the internet, you know, even if you sue to have it removed in one place, are you really going to get it removed everywhere? Once it's out on the internet, it's really hard to, um, to, to remove something. Uh, you're dealing with a lot of judgment-proof defendants. A lot of the people creating these are are not for-profit entities. You're not suing the platforms here because they, they're immune. immune. Um, you know, you're going after a lot of younger people who are just creating stuff. Some of them are just doing it for fun or for whatever whatever reason they're doing it. They're not, but they're they're relatively judgment-proof. Uh, as I said, the injunctive relief is limited. You're, you're going to have a hard time removing them from all but the, the largest sites that might cooperate. On the criminal side, there's really a lack of meaningful consequences. You know, a, a misdemeanor charge is not much of a deterrent for someone who is going to be creating this stuff anyways. And the, the deep pocket pockets um, have immunity, uh, the platforms. And unfortunately, that applies even to some of these pornographic websites that are hosting this stuff. Um, and I think, you know, there's been a lot of argument um, for, uh, well, there's actually, I've never seen so much discussion of CDA Section 230 in my life as we have over the last maybe year, um, pro and con, um, as you may know, there was the recent executive order threatening um, the internet service providers that relating to section 230 and the interesting thing was that the executive order what I found very weird about it um, aside from the fact that it includes representations that were vehemently denied in the litigation um, against the president for his um, activity on Twitter uh, mean, namely that the platforms are public forums um, and the context of um, it went out in uh, C2A if, if I recall correctly which is this good faith uh, action the, when the platform providers take good faith action to remove this content so what when 230 was passed it included two um, provisions. One was um, in response to a, uh, I believe it was a defamation claim, if I recall correctly. Um, you know, it said that the interactive computer service won't be treated as a publisher or speaker, you know, essentially for any, uh, any purposes. Well, you know, but they also at the same time created, because it was part of the uh, Communications Decency Act, which was targeting, you know, a, a lot of pornographic content um, that was so the there was cre the safe harbor exception that was created as good Samaritan exception saying you know hey if 
providers, if you do choose to moderate content and take it down, you're not going to be liable for taking it down. And until recently, especially the large platforms really have not been leaning on that Good Samaritan uh, provision. And that's the, the provision that really needs to be beefed up, if anything. But uh, the recent executive order goes after it. And having worked on Capitol Hill around the time that this whole thing was, uh, was passed, uh, nobody in that day and age anticipated today's guarantee you that because I was in hearings on this stuff um, it, and the section 230 has really grown and expanded in a way that this unfettered um, wild west mentality and I think is really time this the section 2a c2a uh, really has a lot of uh, gives the the platforms a lot of power to take down this kind of content but the problem is a lot of the deep fake content, particularly the uh, non-consensual porn, porn content, is on sites that cater to that kind of content. So they're not going to avail themselves of it. So they have this broad protection for actions that they're taking part in. And really, they need to, um, I, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Section 230 over the next few few years i'll say because I, nothing happens quickly but um i think there's really this growing steam to see some uh, either some new carve outs to 230 or other forms of reform to 230. Um, but for now these platforms have really significant amount of um, immunity um, so not only has the law had trouble keeping up technology is having trouble keeping up um, as soon as there, there's a number of detection technologies that have been created, um, one of the first ones looked at iBlinks. So because deep fakes were being created based on um, still photos predominantly, the, the, tech, the te detection technology looked at the fact that the deep fake video was not blinking normally. But as soon as that, um, as soon as that technology to detect it was released, the deepfake creators tweaked the algorithm and then they found ways to make the deepfakes blink. Uh, another technology looked at distortions and what's happening now, a lot of the um, detection technologies are no longer publishing their, um, their research so that it makes it harder for the people creating deepfakes to keep up with um, the detection technology. But one of the things I saw it described as um, one researcher described it as a um, like a chess game and another one I just saw in a more recent article they described it as similar to the antivirus software because it can only you know it, it can only keep up with stuff that has already been created and then they find new ways to get around it one of the there's a number of technologies that have been uh, looked at uh, other than just detection technologies so there's some uh, digital provenance technologies. Uh, this, these are coming into more and more focus and are being discussed more frequently now. And what the digital provenance technologies do is they basically fingerprint or watermark at the time of creation, like I do photography. So at the time the photograph is taken, some you know the software in the camera will will fingerprint the photograph um, from the onset. 
And the idea behind these um, technologies is that the platforms would adapt a, adopt a technology that detects those fingerprints. And if it doesn't have, you know, if the, the photo or video doesn't have the fingerprints or hashes or whatever term you want to use embedded within the, the file that's uploaded, the platform would automatically label it as potentially fake or something like that. Uh, the problem is, you know, there's tons and tons of content out there that doesn't currently have that. There's, uh, it requires the equipment makers, the, you know, the editing technologies. It requires all these uh, parties in the, the life cycle of content to embrace these technologies. And um, it, it's really hard to get all those parties to agree. There are some distortion technologies that what the, that does is it will, it, it puts a layer over a photograph or video um, so that if a, it, when the, the deep fake algorithm scan, you know, reads the photo, the, it sees a top layer that is really distorted so it can't read the photo. Though that's one of the things that's been discussed uh, for people who are like, like high-ranking politicians or celebrities, there's talk of these authentic alibi or life logging services. Uh, those ones, um, so what that is, is stuff like you wear a fitness tracker or you have an app in your phone and it literally logs where you are at all times. So, you know, when the news story breaks that so-and-so was caught with their you know, secret lover at Spago's or the Ivy or whatever, this third party, this trusted third party will have a log that would show that the person wasn't actually there. Uh, that's a lot of data being put in the hands of a third party that you may or may not trust. Um, and it, it's a really intrusive tech, you know, potential technology. But for some people that it may be worth it. Um, and then there's these hashing technologies, and these um, are being used. Facebook has a technology for revenge porn victims right now, um, and some are talking about whether this could be used for deep fakes, although it requires that the, photo, the video or photograph already be out there. Um, but what happens is for people who are, for instance, threatened with revenge pornography, Facebook has a service, I guess you would say, because it's potentially somebody might see this photo but the person who's being threatened can send the actual photos to Facebook ahead of time. Facebook then, you know, hashes the photo. They basically read it, take the information from the photo, create a digital file, allegedly destroy the original photos. But then if anybody tries to upload those photos after the fact, it automatically blocks it because it, it has, um, has, you know, within this hashed private, um, data, it, it recognizes the photo. It, it, it's kind of a similar concept to the YouTube content ID technology, but that would require the, you know, in the context of deep fakes, that would require that you already have access to a deep fake that is out there. But there is hope. As I mentioned here in California, we've passed two laws, um, one of which deals with political deep fakes, one of which deals with nudity. And I'm going to talk about the anti nudity bill in a moment. Um, other states are exploring legislation. There is bipartisan support at the federal level. Um, the, oddly enough, uh, some of the legislation that's been discussed, and, and right now most of the legislation 
uh, at the federal level re relates to research funding. It, it's not, there's nothing being done yet to actually address the, the issue, but you know, you've got uh, one of the, the cases or one of the acts of le legislation that has passed, the two key sponsors were Marco Rubio and Adam Schiff. So you, that's really like two interesting uh, people to work on bipartisan legislation. In Australia, they've criminally banned deep fake pornography. I mean, so some, some stuff is going on. There's re ongoing research. And there was an article, so just this last week, within the last few days, um, one of the key research initiatives uh, was, was sponsored by Facebook, and it was called the Deep Fake Detection Challenge, where um, they uh, just recently, there are actually some controversy over it because the, uh, the alleged winner was disqualified after because of some irregularities in the data set they used. But the algorithm that ended up winning was able to spot things, to spot the, the deep fakes with an accuracy of 65.18%. And the, the original winner that um, was disqualified had a 80 something percent um, accuracy rating. Um, not good enough when you're talking about potentially millions of videos in the future, but um, when you talk about how many are uploaded, but you know, Facebook has taken a very active role here. Um, so, for all their faults, uh, you know, they do deserve some credits for that. Credit for that. Um, and they did have this, you know, this challenge where uh, they had folks trying to create detection algorithms. And so, uh, there there are efforts on it. Um, newsrooms do have training and other solutions that they're implementing. And um, the platforms are addressing deep fakes in their, their policies. But so here in California, uh, on January 1st, uh, Civil Code 1708.86 went into effect. And, you know, hopefully this will be a model for other states in the future. But, and this goes beyond just the deep fake pornography and potentially applies to any form of digitally manipulated um, sexual content. Um, and it, it creates a cause of action if somebody creates and intentionally discloses it and they knew or should have known that there was no consent to the creation or to the disclosure. So it could be either, um, or if they intentionally disclose it and they knew that it didn't, you know, somebody else's, uh, material. And this is where there's the potential for, um, some of these smaller deep fake websites to maybe have liability. I, I don't know that this will stand up to Section 230 uh, immunity, but given how actively involved some of the, um, the pornography sites are, um, you know, I think there, there may be some interesting challenges coming down. Um, but if they knew that the person did not consent um, and they still distribute it, um, so that also will deal with the, the third party um, redistribution as well. Um, you know, spreading the content. There, the consent, and so this goes largely to uh, production, to motion picture production. Um, there's a requirement now that if you're gonna get consent for uh, digital nudity, that it has to be in plain language. It has to be signed knowingly and voluntarily. Uh, it has to actually have a description of the scene or the nudity. 
and, and of the work of, as a whole, so it can't just be a blanket consent. There is a potential for revoking it um, unless there's adequate time to review it or it's been approved by like an agent or authorized representative. It's got a three-year statute of limitation and it does um, use the discovery rules. So it's from the date it was discovered or should have been discovered. And particularly with the unauthorized pornography, I think that's important because you can't really expect people to be trolling deep fake porn sites to know if there's content of them out there until somebody brings it to their attention. And especially because some of these sites are not places that you want to be trolling. Um, some really significant remedies, including, you know, if the deep fake is made maliciously, there's a potential for statutory damages of up to $150,000, which is one of the highest, um, I think, if not the highest ever in the state. And our, um, my colleague who worked on this bill, my colleagues, um, you know, this was really a huge victory and um, they put a lot of work into it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, it's going to provide some potential relief to a, a lot of people if, uh, you know, in the future. And if not relief, at least it hopefully will act as a deterrent and cause people to think twice before, uh, you know, especially in the, in the context of uh, uh, film production, you know, before they try to digitally insert, you know, nude scenes to spice up a movie or something. Uh, there's a similar bill moving through the Senate in New York. Um, I think things are kind of on hold right now in the legislature there with the, um, the current pandemic, but um, it's very similar to the, the California bill with a few uh, relatively minor differences, although the lack of statutory dam damages is a fairly um, uh, big one and the shorter statute of limitations could be uh, difficult. Um, and it does expressly exempt any party that would be exempt under the CDA. Thanks everyone for coming and thank you, Danielle Venlier, for so much for doing this. It's a lot of work and I know you're super busy. Fortunately, having done this one before, it's, um, it, it, I didn't have to recreate the wheel, which was nice. Um, so that at least was helpful. And I, and I appreciate the, the large turnout um, and all the thanks that I'm seeing in the chat. Um, I see one of my students from uh, this this uh, semester even, you know, just said hi, so, and a couple of my friends. So I, I appreciate everybody. Um. <laughs> Thank you for listening to A Conversation With Podcast, hosted by Southwestern Law School's Biederman Institute. This series is generously supported by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. For more information, check out the links in the show notes. You can also find information about upcoming conversations at www.swlaw.edu. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear new episodes. We hope to have you back again for more conversations. Bye until the next time.